Welcome to Women in Chemicals, Woman of the Week. I'm Amelia. And I'm Kylie, and we're joined, you guys, by Jean Zafia, who has 38 years in the chemical industry as an executive, is a recent retiree of Ashland in 2020, and is also a member of our very own Women in Chemicals Advisory Board. So uh, is this where you want me to say hi, Amelia? Yeah, perfect. <laughs> so hi, everyone. Yes, my name is Jean Zafia. I'm, I'm really happy to uh, join you today. Uh, to take you through a little bit of my journey, I guess, through a 38-year career in chemicals. And um, hopefully um, what I have to say, what I have to share will be helpful to you and uh, maybe provoke some questions we can get to you at the end. So thanks Perfect. for coming. Thank you, Jean. The sponsor for this episode is Progressio Global. Progressio Global helps chemical companies create breakthrough results at the intersection of strategy, marketing, and leadership. Progressio helps exec executives and their team deliver streamlined strategies with effective execution, enhanced customer relationships while generating higher profitability, and robust organizational alignment to allow successful business transformation. Wondering how your team can deliver upon its vision and strategic goals? Contact Progressio Global. Their experience is your catalyst. And I also want to note that the um, principal behind Progressio Global, Victoria Meyer, will be leading us through a um, webinar next week entitled Negotiate Your Success. Um, so we invite you all to sign up on our website and there's a link on our, link on our LinkedIn as well. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Amelia. And thanks again, Jean, for joining us. I'm really excited to learn from you and listen to you today. So I think uh, it'd be best to just kick things off with an introduction of yourself, your background, um, and some of the highlights of your career. No, well, sure. Um, again, really happy to be here, um, Kylie, and, and thanks to everybody for taking the time. So yeah, as we mentioned, I'm a 38-year veteran of the chemical industry, born and raised New Yorker. Um, Started with SEBA Specialty Chemicals, who was SEBA Geigy back in the day, uh, right out of school, and uh, spent about 27 years with SEBA, actually, um, up until 2009. In 2009, SEBA was acquired by BASF, and so um, I, I entered a period of about a year working for BASF. Um, it, it may come through later in some of the stories, but you know, if SIBO was still existing, I probably work, would have worked my entire career with SIBO, but that was not to be, and maybe for the better. Um, after a year with BASF, I, I joined ISP, a small chemical company in Northern New Jersey. And after a year and a half with ISP, ISP was acquired by Ashland. So I like to tell people that I worked for one company for 27 years, and then three companies in the ensuing four. Um, so sounds like I couldn't hold a job, I guess. <laughs> That's awesome. And then, Jean, what was your educational background? Oh, sure. So I, I went to um, Manhattan College here in, in the Bronx, um, with a, graduated with a major uh, BS in biochemistry, kind of grew out of a, a, a recognition halfway through my college career that I guess I didn't want to go to medical school. That was a consideration for a minute. Um, ended up with a biochemistry degree and, and frankly thought I would spend my entire career sort of working at a bench, working in a lab. Um, that was, you know, that was my expectation. I joined SIBA right out of school and in, in not too long a period, 
um, recognized that laboratory work was really not for me. Um, it wasn't kind of fast paced enough. It wasn't, um, yeah, I just didn't move as quickly as I like to see things move. So at that point, I, I pivoted to more commercial roles and, and that's really where I stayed for the rest of my career. Once I made that recognition, I also decided to go back to school at night for an MBA. And, and so I got an MBA from NYU. Perfect. I think we'll jump into maybe your pivotal moments and a couple other questions. I'd be curious to understand, you know, how that change from more lab-based roles to more commercial roles uh, worked for you and, and your many career uh, pivots. So um, let's talk a little bit about first um, your early career um, and, and how that period in time might have spanned uh, a time frame before diversity and inclusion was the forefront of a lot of organizations, uh, mission values, goals, and things like that. Um, did you ever feel like your gender affected your experiences, pay, or potential opportunities within the chemical industry? Uh, for sure, yes. I, I, I would say, honestly, less so on the pay or promotion um, side than on the experiences, for sure. Yeah. Um, SIBA was, uh, at the time, or yeah, was a Swiss-based company, which from a cultural standpoint was rather benevolent. Yeah. Um, you know, SIBA had a very kind of warm and fuzzy family sort of friendly um, feeling right from the very beginning. So uh, I'll be very, very honest. I've been asked this question a lot. I can't ever point my finger at sort of a promotion I didn't get or a raise I didn't get that I felt was due to the fact that I was a woman. Having said that, that's not to say that I did not have absolutely experiences that were colored by my gender in the broader industry at that time. Yeah. Um, anything from, um, you know, snide remarks of tokenism to um, inappropriate behavior or comments from colleagues once in a while, believe it or not, more likely customers and clients and other participants in the industry. This was relatively common. Um, I'll give you another blast from the past when I was very new in my career, uh, a completely appropriate form of customer entertainment was to take customers to strip clubs. Okay. Um, yeah, that wasn't something that I was in a hurry to go experience. And to be fair to my colleagues, they usually dropped me at the hotel before they took the customer off to the strip club. But I mean, that's something that you just simply don't see now. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I will say that was true in my early career and was true all the way through, honestly, I was blessed by being surrounded by really great colleagues who even before it was sort of a common thing to do, were very comfortable calling out inappropriate behavior, whether it was a client or at an industry function, you know, just kind of being there and having my back up to and including sort of whisking me out of dicey situations, even if it made them look bad in front of a client, it was sort of never a consideration. Um, mm -hmm. Those folks are in my mind forever and, and they were like my brothers. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's great. And I think that maybe a little bit, hopefully there's this like catapult or springboard effect of, of people seeing how your colleagues might've responded in tough situations to, you know, stand up for what they value and what they consider respect um, and maybe really taught other folks and maybe some of those customers and those experiences, you know, a lifelong lesson on the other side, like you still carry with you, but on the other side of things. 
I think so. Um, you know, it, it really was much more pronounced early in my career than later. I, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I like to say that we have definitely seen progress. Um, are we there yet? No. I mean, the, the fact that this group exists is maybe a little bit of evidence that, you know, we're not on completely equal footing yet. But um, there's been a lot of progress. I can see that for sure. Absolutely. That's, that's great to hear and exciting to see what, you know, the rest of, I'm, I'm earlier on in my career, so I'm excited to see maybe what will happen when I'm nearing that retirement time, which is years and decades ahead, but um, hopefully accelerated change continues. So, um, so Jean, the next question we have uh, is talking about maybe how you took larger steps into more complex roles and more leadership visibility over time. Um, How did you make the jump from an individual contributor to a team lead to an executive? Um, And what things did you intentionally or deliberately do to ensure that you continued to progress throughout your career as you became an executive? Yeah. So, so that there's a lot to unpack in that question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and so let me try and take it maybe chronologically is probably the the best way to do it, right? One of the first lessons I learned, and I was still fairly early on in career, let's say six or seven years in, right? At that point, I was feeling confidence in my ability to do the jobs that I had been given. I was in a commercial role by that point. I'd moved out of the laboratory. I was in product management, which was a job that I loved, right? I thought I was well-respected, good performance reviews, all that kind of jazz, right? And at a moment in time, um, the big commercial role became available, became open. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I can't even remember what the role was. It was probably a commercial business lead of some type, right? And I thought, all right, perfect. You know, I positioned myself. I'm in the right place. I've got all these great performance reviews. People like me. And, and long story short, I didn't get the job. Not only did I not get the job, but actually to add insult to injury, not one of my well-qualified colleagues got the job either. They actually went outside the company and hired in some talent for the job. And I I was devastated at that moment, I have to say, I was devastated. And and so I made an appointment with the VP who was hiring for the role. And and, we had the conversation, uh, I'll admit, a little emotional on my side, like what happened, right? And why wasn't I considered and what he said to me was something that I that stayed with me for the rest of my life. He said, we didn't know you were interested, right? We didn't know you were interested. Now, it would be easy to say that that was just an excuse, but for a moment as a learning, but take it at face value. I had to go and ask myself, did I ever throw my hat in the ring? Did I ever say, hand up, I want to be considered for bigger roles, better roles. And to that point in my career, in fact, I had not. Mm-hmm. I was laboring under this assumption that you do good work, you show up every day, people like you, your performance reviews are strong, and, and, and it all just sort of happens. And what I learned is that it doesn't happen, right? And so at that point in my career, I was probably in my early 30s, right? Maybe even late 20s. Um, I said, okay, now I understand the rules here and started putting up my hand. And then mm-hmm. things started to happen for me. And so this is the next thing I would say, next learning I would share, right? I was given roles that weren't necessarily always promotional, right? They were more 
expansion rather than sort of, um, you know, a vertical move. I like to refer to climbing the corporate ladder. I really don't like that metaphor. What I really think is more about is finding your way through the maze, right? But I was asked to take on a number of sort of um, corollary or ancillary projects while at the same time, of course, doing my full-time job. Mm -hmm. So over time, that meant, you know, I, I designed and ran a team um, around the customer complaint resolution process um, twice, not just once, but twice, uh, led a sub-team on, on SAP implementation, mm -hmm. um, took on a horizontal road in the organization, almost like a staff function that was looking kind of across industry at an application area given a team for 18 months to basically manage off the grid. Um, and every one of these opportunities really came because I had started saying, yes, pick me. I want this expansion. And, and it did a lot for me in terms of not just helping me learn more content, right? But maybe more importantly, this side word explosion of my network. Mm-hmm both internal to the company, as well as externally to other stakeholders, customers. It really culminated for me in, in the biggest leap, and then this will be the, the next part of the journey, the biggest leap when I was asked to take over the procurement organization at SIVA um, as a development assignment, right? And so this was after years of kind of taking on these other jobs that I did at the same time as my regular job. There came a moment um, where leadership decided they needed somebody more business oriented to run the $1 billion procurement organization for SIBA in North America and asked me to take it on. Now, I knew nothing about procurement, nothing, right? But I had gained confidence and I had gained a network of people over the, you know, the previous five or seven or 10 years um, that made me say, why not? You know what? Uh, I'll take, I'll take a leap. Mm -hmm. So Dean, I've got a couple of summarized bullets as I take my own notes to, to be able to share with our community too. So uh, it sounds like you learned pretty quickly the extra or added opportunity that comes with making your interests or your wants for potential opportunities known. Um, and I think it's something that I didn't really consider myself I kind of to be honest I got goosebumps a little when I said that and when you said that because I was thinking to myself man are there situations to date where I haven't been vocal enough about what interests me um, and putting my own you know hat in that bucket too so uh, I appreciate you sharing that with me <clears throat> excuse me and then you talk a little bit about sometimes how it's not always climbing the ladder it's these vertical moves and experiences that create such a unique to you portfolio that makes you not only have a stronger network and stand out, but makes you um, a unique candidate based on these, you know, one-off experiences that you've had. I think that's great. Um, you talked a little bit about learning to kind of always say yes. Has there ever, and this is a kind of a tangent, has there ever been a time where you felt as though you said yes too much and, and you had to kind of juggle a lot going on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, those moments are always there, right? But I actually feel like 
the, the better story was the one time I said no for, for a very um, relevant reason to people on this call and, uh, and my no was turned away. So, so that story is such, I was pregnant with my first um, child and it was early on. And so I hadn't told anyone yet. And remember, we're still at a point, you know, my kids are grown now. So we're still at a point where it's kind of like, oh, the whole, like, how do I tell my boss I'm pregnant and I'm going to be out for a little while and all this kind of stuff. I hadn't told yet. And I was offered this like super great project opportunity um, to take on. And, and I felt like I couldn't in good conscience take it on because I knew I'd be taking a good slug of maternity leave right in the middle of the project. So I went to, and it was at the time it was the president of the division. And I said, I'm afraid I'm going to have to turn it down. And I shared with him confidentially because I was pregnant. Now I got to tell you something. Where I knew that I was working for a good organization, the guy didn't miss a beat. And he said, yeah, okay, so? And I said, well, I said, you know, feel free to withdraw the offer if you want. He said, said, I'm not withdrawing the offer. Um, Mm -hmm. You have to decide whether it works for you right now. Still works for me, he said. And, And in the end, I did say no and turned it away. Um, of course, worrying all the while whether that was going to harm my future opportunities, anything, right? Because in those, in that short little conversation, that division vice president told me I was working for a great organization. Yeah. That's awesome. So, so there's, there's just one, not one, you know, by, so I, I kind of gave you my logic and kind of moving sideways and and I think this is an upcoming question, or it might have been already buried in the question you asked me. There is, there is one super important point that I want to get to. And, and I, whenever I had mentor relationships with my subordinates, I always talked about that. It's, the, it's that elusive, how do you make the jump to leadership question, right? Mm-hmm. How do you know? How do you do it? And, and, and I have really sort of a very... Um, clear point of view on that might be surprised you know um so if you think about career trajectories in chemical or other or for that matter technical industries could be tech could be chemicals could be you know i don't know um typically we we move forward in our career and move up the ladder if you're thinking in terms of ladder by gaining expertise right becoming more and more the expert in a particular chemistry or, you know, engineering process or market or application area. And, you know, the more expertise you gain and lean and the more you have credibility in that expertise, the more you rise up the ladder, right? Until you hit what I call the expert trap, the expert trap. And this is a trap that I've seen a lot of people get stuck in. Okay, what do I mean by the expert trap? There becomes a moment where your next jump is going to be to lead a team of people who are going to have more expertise than you do, right? It's just gonna happen if you're really gonna make that leap. Well, that can freak some people out. That can make some people say, wait a minute, you mean I'm not gonna be the smartest person in the room anymore about this chemical or this process or what? What's my role then? And that's the key question. What's my role, right? Why do they want me to take over this team if not for my competence in a particular subject matter, right? 
And I will tell you, a lot of people are not able to make that jump. I can't tell you how many sales, super duper sales guys I've seen, they're absolute failures as sales managers, right? Because they've never made that leap. They've never thought about their own value to the organization in any way different than just, because I know a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. In my case, I had a, a boss at a moment, you're gonna ask me later about books, right? Yep. I had a boss at a moment who encouraged me to go through an exercise um, covered in this book called Now Discover Your Strengths. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of this book before. I looked on Amazon. It's still on like a 20-year bestseller list for, for business books, right? Basically, what it, what it does is it takes you through um, an evaluation of your own strengths, right? And, mm -hmm. and and these are strengths in sort of um, yeah, a qualitative way more than quantitative, right? You go through this ex these exercises. I emerge with a set series of five strengths that once you start to understand what these strengths are, they start to answer the question for you. What is my value to an organization, right? So as an example, one of mine was focus, focus, right? My kids will tell you, I can be the most annoyingly focused person, you know, on earth. Um, what that meant in practice in leading a team where I was not the expert, right? Was that I was able to, first of all, being the non-expert, you were allowed and encouraged to ask the silly fundamental mm -hmm. questions, right? That no one else would ever ask because they had so much expertise. But I was allowed to ask because, you know, I had not, right? And in doing that, was able to sort of, you know, go at the whole peel the onion exercise in a way that maybe they hadn't done in a long period of time. I was able, again, because I was unencumbered by all the mm -hmm. information they had, I was able to be sort of laser focused on like, so what are the critical issues for this business? And so that's just one example, but that book and that boss who helped me with this kind of whole process really assisted me in like kind of moving past the expert trap, right? And jumping to the next level, which was leadership to the point that the last 15 years of my career, including this purchasing opportunity that I talked about, last 15 years of my career were spent leading teams where I had no subject matter expertise. Wow. So and people would ask me, didn't that scare you? And by the end, I was like, I loved it. I loved it, right? It, it was freeing in some ways. Just as a follow-up question, Jane, and I actually, I didn't know you were an NYU MBA. I am an NYU MBA right now. Go Violets. <laughs> Anyways. My color. I love it. <laughs> so where do you start when you go into a new team and you're not the subject matter expert in kind of identifying what value you can bring and what they need from you as a leader? Yeah, so, so where you start is, is first of all, and, and this goes to some of your softer leadership skills, right? Where you start is by respecting that team, right? Where you start is, okay, the lead, as an example, one of my last assignments, construction chemicals. I know zero about construction chemicals, but the guy running the team had been in construction chemicals for 25 years, right? Where'd I start? I want to have a sit down with that guy. And I want to talk to him about 
his experiences and his team and his view of his team and what he thinks the team needs and what he needs from me, right? As a manager. And um, in that particular case, it was a wonderful conversation. I happened to be in, in Europe for like a, an EPCA conference or something, and he was European based. So he came and met me, we met somewhere in a lovely little restaurant in Vienna. And uh, we had the best time. And he came with data and slides and charts. And we went through some of them. But halfway through, he kind of put them to the side. And he said, you don't really need this. And I don't really need you to know all this. Can I be really clear and tell you what I think we need from, from someone at your level? Yes. And so it comes from trusting the team, respecting the team, listening to the team, right? And building some early credibility with them like, Look, I, I don't know anything about your business, but clearly you've been successful because you've done X, Y, Z, right? Mm -hmm. So let me just stay out of your way and figure out, again, how I can add value. When I joined ISP, later Ashland, out of BASF, I took over a business, um, Salvin's business, Amelia, you and I have talked about. Uh, I, I knew absolutely nothing about Solvent, but boy, what a super team was already in place. And so just figure out where you can add value and stay out of your way, their, their way the rest of the time. Respect them. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. And I also think from experience myself, we've, you know, more recently in my early career experience, uh, have welcomed external leadership into the organization I work for, um, which is historically maybe tough to do in my organization. Um, and I welcome it because what it brings, Jean, like you said, is a completely maybe fresh perspective that me, only familiar with this business and this space, I'm not aware of because I'm in, you know, a little bit of a bubble here within my organization and my experiences. So fresh perspectives, um, I think, are what we need, especially with how dynamic our industry continues to become. So, But, but from a leadership standpoint, I will say this. Um, you need to understand that for the people who are receiving the new leader, right? Um, your, your first moments can, can make all the difference in whether that goes well or for, the, for you and the team or not. Because mm -hmm. I've also had external um, managers brought in, right, to manage a team where I was maybe the subject matter expert. And uh, at least a couple of times I can think of off the top of my head did not go well, right? Because Someone comes in with a fresh perspective, yes, but also all the answers, right? Um, and, and just starts a, kind of starts pushing people around. It was never my style and I never saw that it worked. Mm -hmm. No, and I think, yeah, so one of the things I put in bold in my notes and in all capitals is listen to the team. I think there is a huge opportunity for you to kind of stay quiet and soak it in at first, because like you said, those first moments are pivotal pivotal in building that credibility. And if you jump right in and act like you know everything that can put people in the day-to-day -day on the ground, you know, put them off and, and make that relationship hard from the start. So yeah, yeah. Um, 
And so Dee and I wish we had all the time in the world to ask all of these questions, but I think I'm going to jump to a, a question that helps us to kind of conclude the discussion part before we break out here. So um, we talk about this a lot in our, our Women of the Week interviews because we still remain in this really tough time in the industry and in the global supply chain in general um, and, and in our careers. Um, so from your point of view as a former executive, what advice would you like to close out with sharing to our community? Yeah, a couple of things. We haven't touched it yet, so so let's go there. Network is one. Okay, network. Mm-hmm. One of those terms that you know I borderline dislike, kind of like climbing the ladder. I borderline dislike because I feel like um, it, it's lost some meaning. It's so overused. But here's what I mean by it. Right. Um, in times like these, you have to understand who the people are in your organization, outside your organization. They could be consultants, they could be recruiters, they could be clients. I mean, uh, for Pete's sake, they could even be competitors. Who are the people who know you and are on your side and can advocate for you and can point you in a direction maybe when you need that, um, whether it's a job, whether it's a, you know knowledge of an opportunity that's opened up. Um, that network, that needs care and feeding. And, and I will say that until, until I was in a position where I was leaving BASF and needed a new job, and by then I was you know, well into my career, I had really undernourished and underfed my network. I know that now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and part of it was because my assumption was I was going to be at SEBA until the day, sure. right? Um, until that was, and that was true until it wasn't, right? Yep. Um, I learned then, and to this day, including now being retired, that the network needs support and care and nourishment, and it's a give and take, right? And um, and that helps navigate uncertain times. For me, you know, one of the most uncertain times was when I was leaving BASF and trying to figure out what was the next 10 years of my career going to look like, because that's really, in my mind, I had 10 years left, right? And, and the time that I spent trying to figure that out did not involve um, sending out 500 resumes to jobs that I saw on LinkedIn. What it involved right. was making lots of phone calls to people in my network and just catching up and saying, mm-hmm. how are you doing? What's happening? Um, you know, that kind of thing. I landed the job at ISP just that way. Yeah. It wasn't even a, wasn't even a job. It was just, and so, you know, people are what, support you through hard times, right? Whether it's something like we've never been through before with COVID or whether it's supply chain issues, we've been through those before, um, or whether it's personal, um, you know, career challenges. Like I had to change jobs at a moment where I never thought I'd change jobs, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, understand who are your who are your supporters, who are your backers inside your own organization, who are your champions? It's really helpful to have someone above you in the organization pulling for you kind of like on the side, right? Um, I've had that a couple of times in my career and it really helped me out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's great. And I think that's a huge part of why this community exists and why you're such a big part of it, Jean. So um, hoping that, you know, at the very least, a place to start for those that are here uh, with us in the interview today and listening later on, uh, that you guys know that this is a great place to start your network. And I'm, you know, 
always willing to help. And I'm sure that folks like Jean and Amelia and, and other folks on our advisory board and our ally board, always willing to reach out and help fill, uh, find those connections and build that network or start one. So um, Dean, kind of a funner, a more fun question to ask for you as we kind of wrap up here. Um, as you are in retirement now and more recently in retirement, was there a point in time where you just knew that it was time to retire or how did you come to that decision and what are you doing now to stay busy? All right. So yeah, that's a great question. Anyone who knows me a little bit knows that I'm a planner. Okay. And so it wasn't a moment in time. It was five years before the moment in time. I was like <laughs> probably five years in advance. I had uh, 2019 middle of 2019 sort of on my radar screen probably no exaggeration from 2015 or 14, right? And what, what was magic about that date was the fact that my youngest child would be graduating from college and there would no longer be big tuition bills to be paid, right? Mm -hmm. And I used to think, wouldn't it be good if, you know, financially we were in a position where, where I could step away at that time? And, um, and, and so as time went on um, and 2019 came closer, um, Ashlyn was going through some stuff with restructuring and, and there, and this is where you've always got to be aware of like your leverage and your opportunities, right? There came a moment in time where um, Ashlyn was inviting people to leave as part of a downsizing, right? I had a target date in mind. I will say that at the beginning, those two things were not necessarily completely in alignment, right? What Ashlyn was looking for in terms of people leaving and what I was looking for in terms of timing wasn't really aligned, but this is where your network is important and being able to reach into the network and saying, you know, I, I'd like to have a conversation. There's enough commonality here that I'd like to have a conversation with someone about this, right? And maybe we can find a way for it to work for both of us because we all know the best business decisions are when it works for both parties, right? Mm -hmm. Here are some games. And so, you know, as shorthand, that's, that's what ended up happening. And so in 2018, in fact, I agreed an exit plan um, with Ashland that would terminate by the end of 2019. As it turned out, they needed me to stay on a little longer to help with some things that were going on. And so I happily did that. But um, it was an agreed on plan. It worked. And it gave me time while I was also working to think about what do I want my next chapter to look mm -hmm. like. Right. And, and one of the reasons why I wanted to retire at, a, I guess, a relatively young age is because I had felt that there were so many things I hadn't done in 38 years because these jobs have become all consuming. I hadn't done in my, my mind enough volunteer work. I hadn't done enough kind of giving back to the community. And so with the help of an executive coach and throughout my career, by the way, I have had executive coaches um, here and there. I got some help and clarity in thinking through sort of what the next chapter looked like. And what it really amounted to was things that I'm passionate about. Um, supporting young women in STEM fields is something that I'm passionate about. And so I joined the board of Girl Scouts Heart of the Hudson here in New York. Um, I volunteer for SCORE, an organization that helps young, small businesses start up. Many of them, the majority of them, um, run by women and, and often women of color, okay? Um, I decided that, um, you know, financial literacy and um, 
and education were things that were sort of in my wheelhouse, right? So I'm active now in my alma mater, right? In the engineering school, right? In terms of that, I've been for years on the board of my uh, local library here um, because I believe that's an important give back. So, so all those things, plus, you know, keep dipping my finger in and keeping, keeping my fingers in the, the, um, chemical industry pie by virtue of some small consulting gigs, okay. uh, you know, kind of keeps me relevant and keeps me in touch with folks like you. So all of that kind of combined have me super, super busy. <laughs> sounds like it. I think that's great. I'm the type of person, it sounds like you might be too, Jean, that, you know, can't sit still for too long. So yeah, I, mean, I was never going to be sitting on the couch using yeah. Netflix, you know, it's just not my style. Sure, sure. Well, we certainly appreciate your volunteered time um, on our advisory board. Um, well, Jean, this kind of concludes the discussion portion of the interview process, and we hope that we have you maybe for a more informal small group networking that I will, you know, let Amelia jump into here. So thanks again, Jean, so much for your interview time. Thanks for the opportunity. I told Amelia earlier, it was kind of nice to mentally walk down memory lane a little bit. Um, <laughs> my career, I enjoyed it. Thanks. Yeah.